If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at Glowing Bible Church. Really happy that you're here. I'm happy to be here. As guests, we'd ask that you not leave empty-handed. You'd let us give, a, give you a gift. It's a little book I've written titled Following Jesus. It lays out our aim as a church that is helping people follow after Jesus. And so if you want to get to know us better, you could pick up a copy of that book at the Welcome Booth in the Welcome Center on your way out this morning. Just grab a copy. It's yours to have. Help you get to know us a little bit better. Some of my stories in there as well. It'd help you get to know me a little bit better. We, uh, and there's someone at the booth there. If you had questions about who we are as a community of faith, you could ask that person and they'd do their best to answer. I'd invite everybody to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 2 this morning. Follow along as I read one of those Old Testament stories that can be hard for us as moderns to digest. Today's story is one of holy war. And current cultural events have given us lots to consider as we consider this morning's passage. In this morning's passage, Israel begins its conquest of neighboring nations just on the border of the promised land. This conquest for many readers can be hard to digest, especially when the story involves what it involves today, quote, the complete destruction, unquote, of nations, including men and women and children. I'll be honest with you, there are some who will not accept the Old Testament as God's word because of these types of stories. And then there are many Christians who avoid the Old Testament altogether because of these types of stories. So what are we to do? Are we to discard the Old Testament? Are we to pretend these stories aren't here? When we sit to disciple our kids, are we to steer them away from these types of passages? And I would admit there is some wisdom at at discerning when is best to introduce our kids to these types of stories. Are we to downplay the modern relevance? Are we to hedge on the inspiration and authority of Scripture? As we prepare to read this passage this morning, let's begin with making sure we understand one of the primary reasons that we as 21st century believers can accept the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 2 to be specific, as inspired and authoritative for us this morning. We can do so because Jesus did. We can accept the Old Testament as God's word because Jesus accepted it as God's word. When Jesus was in the wilderness, and Matthew chapter 4 records it, after fasting for 40 days, Satan came to him and tempted him. The temptation was apropos because Jesus was hungry, and so Satan says, hey, turn these stones into bread for yourself. I'll give you one guess as to the book that Jesus quoted from in response to this temptation. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Clearly, Jesus had read the book of Deuteronomy. More to the point, he had read Deuteronomy chapter 2. And he had accepted it. In fact, Deuteronomy is one of the Old Testament books from which Jesus most often quoted. In fact, over and over again, the strangest Old Testament stories were offered by Jesus when he was teaching in the first century. When he was making disciples, that's what we're doing here this morning. The church at Glowing Bible is wanting to help people learn from and follow after Jesus. And as we do that, we don't shy away from Deuteronomy 2 because Jesus didn't shy away from the Old Testament. I'll give you some examples. When talking about his second coming, his return to earth, 
Jesus said, my second coming will be like the days of Noah. Right? He, he references the story of aquatic judgment when people, men, women, and children, were wiped from the face of the earth. And he says it will be like that. And when talking about the final judgment, Jesus, he said it would be like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Luke chapter 10, verse 12, the final judgment would be like what fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And when asked about marriage, right, whether divorce is permissible, he talked about Adam and Eve in the garden. And how many 21st century Christians, I don't, not even non-Christians, how many 21st century Christians are wrestling with whether Adam and Eve were real historic figures. Folks, Jesus didn't balk. He said, it, he said it was not like that in the beginning. It's Matthew 19 when he's talking about whether divorce is permissible. It wasn't like that in the beginning. And then he says, what God's joined together, let no man separate. And he hearkens back to God giving away the first bride in the garden to Adam. And when Jesus predicted his own resurrection from the, dead, from the dead, he compared it to the sign that was given to Nineveh, a pagan city, a, a non-Israelite city, who had, was called to repentance by a guy named Jonah. He said it will be like the sign given to Nineveh. Well, the sign given to Nineveh was the ride that Jonah took so that he could preach. He, three days in the belly of a fish, he said, that's what my resurrection is going to be like. Three days in the grave. If we were to ask anyone to name four Old Testament stories that are often most ridiculed by popular culture and wrestled with by skeptical Christians, I dare say it would be these four. It would be Adam and Eve in the garden. It would be Noah's flood. It would be Sodom and Gomorrah and the fire raining down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be, did Jonah really ride in the belly of a great fish for three days and get spit up on the shore so he could go preach? Yet Jesus speaks of all four of these as historic events. Jesus was thoroughly familiar with the Old Testament. More to the point, he accepted it as God's word. Now, why does it matter that Jesus treated the Old Testament as God's word? Well, it matters for a couple reasons, uh, both having to do, well, the first having to do with our comfort, and the second having to do with our confidence. And those, kind, those overlap. It matters because when we come to passages like this morning in which ethical questions are raised, we can take comfort in the fact that Jesus was the greatest ethicist who ever lived, and he didn't balk on these Old Testament stories. When I say that Jesus was the greatest ethicist that ever lived, and I point out that, that he accepted Deuteronomy, he accepted Deuteronomy chapter 2 as authoritative and inspired, my point is the one who taught us to love our neighbors accepted this morning's passage. The one who said, pray for your enemies, this, these are ethical teachings, he accepted this morning's passage. The one who said, turn the other cheek, accepted this morning's passage. The one who said, when someone asks you to go one mile, go two miles with them, he accepted this morning's passage. The one who said, treat others the way you want to be treated, he accepted this morning's passage. This means that there must be something going on in today's passage that's unique ethically, something that while it may challenge us from a modern perspective, does not, in fact, undermine the doctrine 
of Scripture's inspiration, God breathed, and Scripture's authority. We're to submit to it. We're to accept it and submit to it. Something's going on here such that the greatest ethicist who ever walked the earth accepted this. Our job is to dig into the passage to see what is going on in the ancient context that we might apply to our modern context. But it's not just Jesus' unparalleled brilliance as an ethical teacher that gives us comfort to follow his acceptance of Deuteronomy, his acceptance of the Old Testament. Ultimately, Jesus' acceptance of the Old Testament gives us confidence to similarly accept it because Jesus was raised from the grave. In short, it's one thing to be brilliant ethically and to be a great teacher. It's a whole other matter to overcome death. So when I wrestle with something in the biblical text, I'm going to go with the guy who was raised from the dead. His resurrection from the dead, my wrestling aside, his resurrection from the dead proves he is who he says he is, namely God. And let's be honest, if we're unwilling and or unable at this current time to accept that Jesus was raised from the dead, then discussing the meaning of Old Testament passages which give us ethical goosebumps is going to be difficult as well. But if and when we accept Christ is raised from the grave and see how he handled the Old Testament, then it, it moves forward for us much easier. So as we approach the conquest of nations in the promised land, we do so with comfort that Jesus didn't balk when it came to the Old Testament. And we do so with confidence Jesus was raised from the grave. Follow along as I read Deuteronomy chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 24. It's on the screen. As I read this, my encouragement is just to note God's role in the war, okay? So it starts out in 24 with God giving directions to mobilize. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gorge. See, I have given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it. Engage him in battle. This very day I'll begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven. They will hear reports of you and will tremble and be in anguish because of you. From the desert of Kedmuth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, let us pass through your country. We'll stay on the main road. We'll not turn aside to the right or to the left. Sell us food to eat, water to drink for the price in silver. Only let us pass through on foot. Let us do this as the descendants of Esau did, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did this for us, until we cross the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. Why? For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands, as he has now done. The Lord said to me, see, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in the battle of Jehaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. At that time, we took all his towns and completely destroyed them, men, women, and children. 
we left no survivors. But the livestock and the plunder from the towns we had captured were carried off for ourselves. From Ahor on the rim of the Arnon Gorge and from the town in the gorge, even as far as Gilead, not one town was too strong for us. The Lord our God gave us all of them. But in accordance with the command of the Lord our God, you did not encroach on any of the land of the Ammonites, neither the land along the course of the Jabbok River nor that around the hill, the towns in the hills. All right. So the first question that we want to ask and answer, we want to wrestle through, is what is the ancient message, ancient author, to ancient audience? There was an inspired, authoritative message from ancient author to ancient audience. Then we want to bridge as best we can to modern application. We want to do our best not to read our modern perspectives, opinions, and thoughts into the text, we want to see, we want to let the text speak in its ancient context and then bridge as best we can to modern application. Here's my best attempt at that. Ancient author, ancient audience, ancient context. Uh, and there could be more than one uh, ancient message to ancient audience, uh, but this is what I believe is at the heart. Some uh, theologians would call this the authoritative message. This is my best effort at the authoritative message of this passage. God was commander-in-chief of Israel's war against Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon. Now, I've limited this to, to one battle, to one war. God was the commander-in-chief of this one, all right? Because I, I want to admit that every, every battle Israel fought was not authorized uh, by Yahweh. This one was. The war against uh, Sihon was directed, planned, executed, and, and accomplished uh, by Yahweh. And here I want to pause for just a moment because of current events and draw a distinction between just war theory and what I'm going to describe as holy war, okay? Just war theory is a relatively modern theory of engagement that looks at the ethics of aggressor nations imposing their will upon other nations. Just war theory is what America would use to condemn Russia's invasion of Ukraine, claiming that Russia's actions are a crime against humanity because Russia lacks what is described in just war theory as just cause and just intention, both of which say that material gain is not sufficient cause for going to war. In other words, it's immoral to invade another country, a sovereign nation, simply because you got what you want what they have. And so on that basis, America and by and large the globe, apparently all but China and India, condemn what's going on uh, by Russia as they invade the Ukraine. It's unjustified, it's immoral, it's criminal. That's just war theory. However, Israel's war against Sihon was categorically different than what's going on with Russia. Why? Well, because Yahweh was the commander-in-chief of Israel. And in this respect, um, the war described here is, is a uniquely, it's both justified and it's holy. And I should note that not all wars fought by Israel were holy wars. <laughs> not all wars fought by Israel were justified wars. Uh, just earlier in the text, uh, a couple weeks ago, Israel marches out against the Amorites and gets uh, beat down, to quote the NIV. 
Because God didn't go with them. God didn't authorize it, and the outcome wasn't good. Although some wars are philosophically justified, I would say that the Ukrainians are philosophically justified in defending themselves, um, this war is unique because God is acting as the commander-in-chief. And I'll just walk you through where we see that in today's passage. We see Yahweh, firstly, identify the enemy. Israel did not identify the enemy, and more to the point, uh, Yahweh identified both the enemy and the allies, the combatants and the non-combatants. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 1, Israel was plainly said, uh, plainly told, don't go against the Edomites, the Moabites, or the Ammonites, but you are to attack the Amorites. And so we, have, we see here God identifying the enemy. See, verse 24, I've given into your hand Sihon, the Amorite king of Heshbon, and his country. Secondly, God, or Yahweh, Yahweh is the Old Testament name by which God revealed himself to Moses when he was standing barefoot in front of the burning bush. It simply means, um, it also it's uh, transliterated as Jehovah. You've probably heard that before. Yahweh is a more uh, exacting translation, uh, transliteration, and uh, it means I am. I am that I am. I've always, it's, it speaks to the eternality of God. So Yahweh directed the military action. Verse 24, set out now, cross the Arnon Gorge, begin to take possession of the land. He's telling them, here's what's, take action. Yahweh determined the goals, conquer the land, possess it. Verse 31, Yahweh fought for Israel, and this is fascinating and should be remembered by us. Yahweh fought, specifically hardening the Amorite hearts and placing fear in their minds and hearts, dread of the Israelite people. This very day, I'll begin to put terror, verse 25, in fear of you in, uh, in all the nations under heaven. Next, Yahweh secured the victory. Verse 31, uh, from Aor on the rim of the Arnon to Gilead, not a, one town, not one town was able to overcome us. Why? The Lord our God gave us all of them. He's securing the victory. Israel had was clearly functioning in this, this war as the army of God. But what are we to do with the actions of that army, namely destroying men, women, and children, non-combatants? How are we to make sense of that from our knowledge that God is definitionally uh, love? Uh, God's character, his person is, is loving. God is love. His person is is, is loving, and it's impossible for him to act in any other way than a loving, good, just, fair, righteous in his character. Here's my best effort at helping us understand uh, the ethics of this. Number one, Israel played a unique role in redemptive history. First, Israel, uh, in this case, Israel is used to execute divine judgment against the Amorites, and in fact, will do so executing divine judgment against all the Canaanite nations. Much like police and judges today are empowered by local authorities to punish wrongdoers, it's Romans chapter 13, New Testament book, Paul's writings, saying uh, these authorities are given for the constraint of evil. They're to constrain evil. Israel was, in this case, executing divine judgment on the Amorites. And frankly, uh, in this sense, God does not play favorites. When Israel sinned and was unrepentant, 
God moved foreign nations to invade and conquer them. Nextly, Canaanite nations exhausted the patience of God. Here we should all take warning. The Canaanites had 400 years to repent of sin and turn to God. 400 years. How do we know that? Well, in Genesis chapter 15, after Abraham and Lot had walked to the promised land, God shows them the promised land. He says, this whole land will be yours, but not yet. Why? He says, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Picture in your mind, ripe fruit, right? The Amorites were not ripe for judgment yet. It wasn't time for judgment against the Amorites. In fact, 400 years would have to pass. He tells Abram that first your descendants, they'll go into bondage in Egypt and I'll bring them out. And so what's our warning this morning? We can't exhaust the patience of God. He's slow to anger. He's not without anger. And so don't let another day pass. If you're toying with sin, if you're entangled in sin, repent. Because we'll all have to give an account before our creator. Annihilation, thirdly, of the enemy was a limited practice for Israel. They weren't given carte blanche, you can do this to everybody you want, and you, you do as you, you see fit. No, they were given specific instructions at the outset of every battle, how they're to behave. Total destruction of the population was not a permanent policy, and frankly, there are many wars that Israel waged in which they didn't annihilate the enemy in this way. The truth is that in our modern setting, we are far too individualistic, not recognizing the corporate culpability that we share as members of a community, a state, and a nation. It's true, we're individuals. Together, though, we make up a whole, and we have some responsibility. We could argue over how much responsibility we have for what's going on in the state of Illinois, or what's going on in the, in the nation. We could discuss that, but clearly, we're, we're part of a whole, and biblically, we see here and we experience, when I sin, my family suffers. When the, when the uh, governors and uh, cabinet members and president and cabinet of our state and country sin, our county, when it's led poorly and sin is allowed, then we suffer as a community. And we bear together some of that responsibility. And we're called the church, frankly. That's why the church has such a, a pivotal role. Paul describes us as the pillar and foundation of truth in the world. We're to stand up, we're to speak out, we'll get to the belt of truth in just a moment. The armor of God that we're to wear, we're to be boldly proclaiming the truth in love. We're to be helping steer our state and nation so that these types of uh, corporate judgments our lesson. We're to call our state and nation to repentance, frankly. Finally, we can trust in the good character of God if we don't understand or wrestle with some of his actions. If the destruction of non-combatants troubles you in this story, now rest assured it troubles me what I see going on as Russia invades Ukraine. It's because it's an unjustified war. But in this passage, if it troubles you, we must admit that the creator of all things, God, can do as he pleases with his creatures. Psalm 24.1. The whole earth is his and all the creatures in it. For this reason, when we don't understand his actions, we can still trust that he will always act consistent with his character. He's just. 
he's fair, he's good, he's loving. So when there's an, a particular part that I don't understand, I default to trusting in his character. I admit I'm finite. There must be something else going on in this passage that I don't realize. I might not realize the corporate nature of judgment in total, in the weight of being a part of a nation, in this case, the Amorites, that had failed to repent over the last 400 years. I'm reminded that Christ said of himself, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it's odd when someone says of themselves, they're the truth. What he's saying was, when you, when you look at me, there's nothing in my actions or attitudes inconsistent with the character, the person of God. He's saying, I am God. I am the truth. And so even if we don't understand all that God's doing in Deuteronomy 2 here, we can default to, he's per, to the knowing his character and trusting and taking comfort in his character. All right, let's bridge to modern application as best we can. We know that God was the commander-in-chief of Israel in this battle. He directed and executed and planned and accomplished the victory over Sihon, king of the Amorites. We can likewise say that God's war against evil continues today and that we're called to engage in the battle. Did you know that God's still fighting evil? Did you know that God is still addressing sin in the world? And God is calling his people to fight the good fight. Those are Paul's words. Our enemy is certainly different. And the nature of warfare as believers is different. But the casualties of war are just as real. Frankly, eternities hang in the balance. Here are Paul's words on spiritual warfare to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Frank, uh, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. I wonder if we were to uh, judge our relative um, battle readiness this morning. Are we strong in the Lord? Are we fighting the good fight? I heard this week that NATO has a fighting force um, that for the last eight years has been inactive by and large. And they've just been on standby, running drills, getting ready uh, for some of what has been unleashed, this type of eventuation in globally. How hard would it be to stay on alert for eight years as a soldier? <laughs> Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Are we on alert, are we battle ready? Are we on kind of a permanent leave? Put on the full armor of God. Here's how you stand firm. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Not against flesh and blood against spiritual forces of evil. We have a scheming enemy, the devil. We've been given armor to wear so that we're equipped to fight the good fight. 
Just as God was Israel's commander-in-chief, he is ours as well. By that I mean that God has identified the enemy. God has directed our engagement. We're to be fighting. God has given us battle armor. He's deployed us. He's determined the goals of our engagement. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the goal. Increasing influence of God in my life, his kingdom coming in my life, my family, my neighborhood, my school, my workplace. That's, God wants more influence, more of his kingdom to reign. That's the goal of this battle. Here's the best news. Just as God fought for Israel, he is fighting for you, for me, for us. His glory our good. And we will have the victory. How do we fight? Let's continue on in Ephesians, verse 14 of chapter 6. Stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. We'll pause there just for a minute. Belt of truth is this uh, figurative belt um, that ancient soldiers would use to gird their loins. They'd tie up and they get ready. It's kind of at the centerpiece of the body. The notion here is that truth needs to be at the center of who we are. It's the first element of the armor. Without this first element of the armor, if truth isn't at the center of our lives, we're not going to fare real well in the good fight we're to be fighting. This means we're not um, to dabble with half-truths, what are affectionately often referred to as, well, white lies, as if they don't they don't injure us and others. No, we're to speak the truth courageously and boldly in love, but courageously and boldly. Now, I should say that um, the first person I should speak truth to is me. <laughs> I should be speaking it to me about me. Right? I should be honest about who I am, my need for redemption, which means that a, a community that values the belt of truth and the armor of God is going to be a community that's okay with confession. We're going to be okay with people telling us the truth about themselves, the sin in their life. We're going to be okay with people crying out to God for mercy and, and utilizing the gospel. So you can tell if a community is, is a community we wearing the belt of truth. If this is a community that really wants to be a, a people of truth, by how much confession's going on. Not just how much finger wagging, but how much re revealing vulnerability there is. And then going to prayer, calling upon the goodness and the grace of God to care for us where truth has not been a priority. Stand firm then with the breastplate of righteousness in place. One of the ways to tell whether or not we're wearing this breastplate of righteousness, and the breastplate just covered the vital organs of the ancient soldier. It was made of metal most often, and right heart and internal organs are, you take a blow here, and you're not going to be faring well in battle. One of the ways that we can tell whether or not we're wearing the breastplate of righteousness is that when we, when we, when we see that we're in sin, what, what is our hope in that moment? Is our hope Christ or is our hope ourself? 
because if the breastplate of Kelly's righteousness is what I'm wearing, I'm in trouble. It's a really tiny piece of armor. <laughs> I got, I, I've got a, a few good things going when it comes. I, I've done some things well, but I want the righteousness of Christ to cover me. He's my greatest hope. And so if we're a community that tells the truth, and part of that's confession, then we can wear the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. We're not our greatest hope. Is this making sense? And when we confront others after we've confessed our own sin, we're offering them grace as well. We're encouraging them to trust in Christ. Here, put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Stand firm then with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Do we have the boots of the gospel on? Are we mobilized with the gospel? Or are we passive with the gospel? Do we, do we offer the gospel in our homes? Do we talk about who Christ is in our marriages and with our kids? Do we, do we share the gospel at work and in school? There is a, a, a correlation between the victories that we experience in life. We're fighting the good fight. We want victories. We, we don't want to be held captive. We want greater freedom and joy. There is a correlation between our sharing the good news of the gospel and our experiencing greater freedom and joy. And some of the correlation, it's, it's, it's just about because the more I share it, the more it's worked its way into the fabric of my soul. It's really who I am and it's what I'm hoping in. And I see it as the greatest news. It, I see the good news for the good news that it is. And I want others to embrace it. And so it's, it's changing me and I want others to experience that change. Are you mobilized? If you're not mobilized, if, if you're barefoot, in the battle that's going on out there, it's not going to go well for you. If you're not sharing the gospel, you should ask why, and, and don't let shame and guilt chase you down. I don't encourage your introspection as to why you're not sharing the gospel to shame and guilt you. I encourage your introspection so that the good news of the gospel can work itself deeper into the soil of your soul. It is a delight to be fully convinced that Christ is raised from the grave. There's no better way to live. Stand firm then with the shield of faith, taking it up with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Without faith, despair and disappointment easily overcomes. And so I would just encourage you to take an inventory of um, how's your faith this morning? The, the arrows that are being shot at you that are discouraging or they are, um, tempt you towards doubt and unbelief. I would encourage you to strengthen your faith. Be strengthened. Listen to the lyrics of the, those singing around you. Listen to the volume. Take encouragement. You're not alone. Raise that shield and believe again. Helmet of salvation. Too many of us leave unguarded our minds. We take in whatever the world has to offer. 
We let people influence us that should not influence us. We have messages going on in our minds that we need to take captive rather than be taken captive by. Every thought, Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, should be taken captive or it will take us captive. And we take these thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ, which means simply we line them up with who Christ is. If I have a thought or a message or something I'm working over in my head, I must judge its veracity, its truth, by who Christ is. And if it's out of line with who Christ is and what he wants from me, then I take it captive and I move it aside. And I don't let it rule over me. The sword of the Spirit you know, ancient soldiers would go into battle with swords sheathed, but at some point in the battle, they unsheathed them. It's not enough to know the Word of God. Paul says, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's not enough to know the Word of God. At some point, you have to speak the Word of God. This is the only part of the armor that's clearly offensive, meaning you go on the attack with it. All other parts are, are defensive or they're aimed at mobilization or repelling the attack of the enemy. This one is aimed at taking ground. We take ground as believers. We secure our freedom and the freedom of others by speaking the word of God. Finally, finally, lastly, Paul says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Folks, I want to invite you forward for prayer. We all need it. The question is, do we want it, right? If you've got something going on in your life, um, first service, I ended up praying to close just uh, for those that felt like they were being held captive or are in acute battle situation. Bob and Maggie Thomas would love to pray for you. They'll be down front. Let's stand and sing together to one another this morning the truths of the gospel. Let me pray for us as we get ready to sing. Father, have mercy on us as a people. It's easy to be passive in battle. It's easy to be apathetic. It's easy to live a life that's captive to sin. Set us free. Help us stand on truth. Help us speak truth. Help us wield the sword of truth. Encourage our faith if discouraged or disappointed this morning. Have mercy on your people, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen.